This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Vance Wells, the Chief Operating Officer of Noblis Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Noblis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for healthcare delivery. Noblis, under its previous name North Star Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athis, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Vance, welcome to the program. Please give us a snapshot of Noblis. Noblis Health is an operator of uh, surgical facilities. We specialize in direct patient marketing in addition to the obvious surgical services we provide. What really sets us apart, I believe, is our focus on patient service and the patient experience. We strive to deliver excellent service to patients all the way through their contact with us from the first time that they call with a question about, for example, back pain, through you know, an in-depth back and forth, an exchange of information to determine what are their treatment options, might they be eligible for a minimally invasive procedure, what are their insurance benefits look like, what will their insurance cover, what would their out-of-pocket costs be. We're really taking the mystery out of that process for a lot of patients and making them feel comfortable and giving them the time and the opportunity to ask all of their questions. That's something that a lot of times is missing from the traditional healthcare experience. You've created a brand name through marketing and also a perception of great service. So potential patients know what to expect when they pick up the phone to dial Nobilis. Absolutely. A lot of people consider, they think about marketing as, you know, you put up a website and you have an ad on Google and that's marketing. Really for us, that is just the tip of the spear. The real service that we're providing is after the patient has made outreach and contacted us, initiated that process. So we're going to take as long as the patient needs to take. We're going to have as many points of contact as we need to have. A lot of times we're talking up to 15 to 20 conversations or interactions between you know the first point of contact and any sort of actual treatment. Would you attribute that astounding success to the marketing? Yes, absolutely. We are really trying to kind of harness the power of consumerism in healthcare. Traditionally, a lot of healthcare channels have been driven simply by the doctor-patient relationship through the sort of evolution of the healthcare system. Physicians are under pressure from insurance companies in terms of reimbursements. They're under pressure to see more and more patients, and something's got to give there. And what happens a lot of times, it's just the amount of time they can spend with each individual patient. It's not necessarily any individual's fault. It's kind of the way the system's evolved. We're trying to kind of step out of that and say, look, as a consumer, you are taking responsibility for your healthcare. You're bearing more of the cost. You have access to more information than ever before through the internet and other sources. And so we're really harnessing the power of that consumerism, giving people a level of service that they want and the amount of information and the level of comfort to make an informed decision about their health care. Word of mouth also contributes to your bottom line. We do about 15 to 20 percent of our uh, surgical volume is through referrals. You and CEO Chris Lloyd were in large part responsible for making Athos an attractive acquisition target for Northstar, which became Noblest. Obviously it's a team effort here and we've put together a very talented group of individuals. We were actually 
actually voted one of the best places to work in Dallas in the last couple of years. And so we're very proud of the atmosphere that we've created here and the talent we've managed to attract. We've always had the attitude that if we are able to help more and more patients, if we do the right thing and remember that our ultimate customer is the patient, we would create value for our owners, our shareholders, and that we would be an attractive target for uh, an acquirer. What are your targets for 2015 and 2016? 2015 is really about blocking and tackling for us. We're obviously integrating two organizations and kind of figuring out where everyone fits and the best way to move forward in our different business lines. The financials in 2015 are going to see a really big pickup from the APHIS acquisition as well as having a full year of First Street Hospital and the Scottsdale ASC. We expect really strong organic growth in 2015 just by nature of kind of the maturation of some of the things that have happened in 2015. 14. In 2016, we expect to be able to continue that growth through probably some acquisitions as well as organic growth in our marketing efforts. We'll be growing the various business lines and probably starting up some new ones. Let's talk about Phoenix. I imagine there's plenty of growth in that particular service area of Nobilis. Phoenix has been a strong market for us ever since we started there. The demographics are very favorable, especially for the spine business. We also have drawn a lot of interest from Southern California, having an innovative treatment available close to that population center. I've been speaking with Vance West. COO of Noblest Health, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Today I'm speaking with Doug Diamond, the president of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper employs integrated high-resolution video, voice, and GPS mapping for extreme mobile applications, increasingly vital for the documentation of law enforcement activity, as well as other security-focused efforts across North America. How would you define Gatekeeper's market? The security market in general is divided up into a number of segments. All of those segments are expected to grow to approximately $23 billion by 2017. We reside in the mobile market, really anything that is moving. There's 550,000 yellow school buses in North America, and there's 30 to 50,000 of those buses manufactured every year. There's approximately 120,000 transit buses. There's taxis, there's aircraft, Coast Guard patrol boats, anything that moves, including law enforcement personnel and security personnel. There's approximately 30 million law enforcement and security personnel that at some point in time will be wearing body cameras. With the recent controversy in areas such as Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City, I would imagine that there would be great interest in gatekeepers' body camera technology across the country. We've just recently introduced a new high-definition body camera. There's been a lot of press in and around the events that have come out of Ferguson. That's driving a significant amount of press across the country. Gatekeeper had introduced the high-definition body camera for not only law enforcement, also security personnel and school districts, prisons, hospitals hospitals, corrections, a number of different marketplaces. So that's potentially a very promising market for gatekeeper. And I mean law enforcement specifically. I'm talking about police. We have been shortlisted in, you know, in a number of cities with respect to our body cameras and our in-car video systems. Let's review another large market and are already seeing success in school buses and your student protector system. The student protector is a high-speed license plate reading system that was specifically designed to install on the outside of school buses to deter stop-arm violations. Stop-arm violations occur when a school bus comes to a 
stop. The stop arm is engaged and children are either boarding the bus, getting on or off. It's during those times that very dangerous situation can occur and that's when a car will pass that stop arm. In the U.S. this year, there's a projected 15 million stop arm violations and what's happened in the past is that kids have either been hit by these vehicles, there's been deaths that have occurred near misses. It's really driven new legislation in various states that allow counties or cities to use video from a school bus video system to issue a citation. How does this translate into prosecution of these violations and revenue for the company. Gatekeeper embarked on a development project approximately a year ago to design a unique system that can record a evidence pack whereby when such an incident occurs, our system captures the license plate, the vehicle uh, identification, GPS coordinates of where the bus was. We also record some other metadata that really creates this evidence pack for the county and the city to be used in court to issue a citation. Now the average citation in various states ranges anywhere from $250 to $750. So literally in a short period of time, there's been this new market category that is created that has the potential to grow into a billion dollar market category. And you already have a good footing in the market. We've been in the market for quite some time. We have approximately 3,500 customers in what's considered at the kindergarten to grade 12 market. Our technology can be used to increase safety in and around the school buses by deterring these incidents from happening. The equipment can be free of charge to the school district. Gatekeeper will provide the equipment, install it on the school buses, manage the entire program, and we can share in the revenue with the school district, the county or the city, and of course ourselves. With Gatekeeper stock at near 19 cents, there's potentially a great deal of upside for the possible investor. The last company I was involved in was about the same size as this one. It was eventually bought out by Honeywell for almost $11 a share. We believe that we are a great potential investment at these prices. Gatekeeper Systems has a wide product line. We're engaged in several markets, one of which is the student protector. I've been speaking with the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. That's GSI.V. Go to the website right now. EllisMartinReport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum Limited trading on the TSX under the symbol WG, and in the U.S. as WGPLF. Well Green Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company entirely focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Well Green PGM nickel copper project and taking it toward production. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Well Green project is one of the largest underdeveloped PGM or Platinum Group metals deposits outside of Southern Africa and Russia. Greg, welcome to the program. It's great to have you back. It's good to be back. It's been a while, I think. As I stated in the open, your company holds one of the largest PGM deposits outside of Southern Africa and Russia. How important is this fact, especially during these trying geopolitical times? Well, it's, it's quite significant in the platinum metal space in particular. Uh, geologically, the, the kind of rocks that, that host our deposit are quite rare on the Earth. And so the biggest concentrations, as, as you mentioned, are in Southern Africa and Russia. It happens, though, that there are a couple of areas in North America, one in Ontario and Montana, and then in the Yukon, that are also large and, and very prospective terrains for this type of 
of expiration. Our project is actually a historic producer. It was put into production. It was found back in the 1950s and put into production in the 1970s as a high-grade underground mine. And since the late 80s, it's been looked at as its potential for open pit development. And our work over the last several years with Wellgreen has, has basically demonstrated the incredible potential with that approach. Wellgreen has recently completed a $9.1 million equity financing. Congratulations. As far as I know, much of that money is flow-through. Where will these funds be allocated? We were able to do that financing at a premium to the share price, about an 11% premium. And the way that works is that's a tax incentive type of investment in Canada that encourages exploration investment. And so that money will ultimately go into the ground over the next 18 months uh, on our Yukon-based project. Those funds will go towards drilling and, and other exploration activities as we advance the Wellgreen project into pre-feasibility and feasibility over the next couple of years. It certainly isn't easy for a resource company to raise money right now. How do you account for your success in that area? You're right. It's been a very difficult market. Most people say that the peak in the sector was probably early 2011. So we've we've had a three going on four year bear market in the sector. And PricewaterhouseCoopers does an annual assessment of the junior mining space, and they pointed out there were only 26 companies in all of 2014 to risk 10 million dollars or more. So it's a pretty small slice when you consider there are about 1,700 listed junior mining companies in Canada. I think. Our success has really been based on both the kind of deposit we have because of the platinum and the the nickel and copper. It's a fairly rare type of deposit to have outside of, as we've mentioned, South Africa or Russia. And secondly, you know, the fact that we're so close to infrastructure and that our project has been a, a past producer, it's really resonated on a low political risk point of view scale of the deposit and the success that we've been able to have doubling the size of the resource here over the last two years. So all of those factors have really culminated in a project that stands out from many others. It's not unusual for junior companies today to just really be hibernating, trying to survive the bear market. And Wellgreen is a company that's been building on its success and advancing actively the project towards production because though most gold projects are struggling with today's metal prices, these are very attractive prices for us to be looking with our particular project and the fact that it's open pit mineable and has that low cost structure. While typically the price of platinum is speculative and tracks gold, the metal itself is unlike gold, in that platinum is an industrial metal used all the time in the automotive industry, and that growth, or use, has not slowed down, has it? Platinum and palladium are, are quite distinctly different than the other precious metals, um, though, uh, as you point out, they tend to track, oftentimes on a shorter-term basis, the movement in gold. Platinum and palladium, the largest single uses in catalytic converters for automobiles and trucks. So the fundamentals have been basically year-on-year growth since about the mid-80s, 4 to 5% a year growth in demand. And on the supply side, up until 2006 uh, for platinum and 2004 for palladium, we saw mining supply increasing. But over the last 8 to 10 years, we've actually been seeing the mine supply falling each year, pretty much consistently because of the high-cost nature of these old high-cost deposits, particularly in South Africa on the platinum side and in Russia on the palladium side. Does that mean until companies such as yours go into production, there might not be enough platinum and palladium worldwide to meet the demand for the automotive industry and beyond? Yeah, both markets, platinum and palladium, are in deficits. In other words, mining supply is falling short of demand each year and has been for the last several years, and most analysts continue to project that going forward. So the opportunity for higher prices for the metal is quite significant. In fact, about 55% of the producing platinum mines 
are losing money at today's price. We're likely either to need to see platinum and palladium prices move significantly higher, or we're going to see further shutdowns of mines that are going to make that deficit position even more extreme. Short term, we've been seeing the price of platinum and palladium kind of parallel the movement in gold, but the fundamentals are so strong, I think that's that's probably a short-term situation that will likely, longer term, reflect you know those very very strong fundamentals. Let's talk about some of the fundamentals for the Well Green project in particular. You're not going to have high production costs comparatively because the mine has been active before, and you plan on doing open pit mining when you get underway. That's not the case necessarily with some of these Southern African or Russian mines. Yeah, our welcoming project up in the Yukon has the benefit of a, a highway going right past it, an existing port that currently takes uh, concentrate material to smelters in Asia and elsewhere. So a lot of the cost of development are already in place for this project because of its very large resource that starts right at the surface. It means that we can approach mining on this project using large-scale open pit techniques, and that means our cost structure is going to be very low. And then the other element is that our grades of nickel and copper that come along with the platinum and palladium when we mine it mean that you know we're producing more cash flow and our cost net of those, those co-product credits mean that we're going to be probably one of the lowest cost producers in the world in terms of our platinum and palladium costs uh, you know, dramatically below the current metal prices. During the last year, and correct me if I'm wrong, your share price hasn't quite taken the hit that many other resource companies have and is not really reflective of precious metal stocks in general. I would say probably not all of our shareholders would agree with that, but it's true to say that we've done much better than most of our peers. And in terms of performance, I think we're, we're one of the top performers in the PGM and nickel space on a relative basis. We've been trading in a range kind of between 50 cents and a dollar for the last two years. That's much better than many of our peers who were off 90, 95% in the same period. What would you say to potential investors listening to the segment that may be considering as an opportunity a company called Wellgreen? I think the things that really stand out for me are the Wellgreen opportunity is at that stage of development where we have a good handle on what we have and it's become over the last two years we've, we've more than doubled the size of the resource. So we've now grown this to one of the world's largest. You're looking in all categories at, at almost 20 million ounces of platinum and palladium in the open pit and you've got an equivalent value of, of almost another 20 million ounces in nickel and copper that come along with that. So it's become a, a true giant. The valuations are still reflecting the bear market conditions. The fundamentals for the PGMs really couldn't be stronger, and I think it's really only a matter of time coming out of this uh, you know, last three to four years of bear market that we're going to see another positive cycle. And with a company like Walgreen that's positioned so well to, to basically advance towards construction and with the scale of the asset we have, I, I can't help but believe that over the next two to three years, this is a project that has a chance to significantly outperform the sector. And Greg, you've had success in the mining business for many years now. Give us a brief synopsis of your history. Myself and the other members of our team all started out our careers with the major mining companies. John Sagman, our chief operating officer in particular, not only started at Placer Dome like I did, which is now Barrick Gold, but went on to spend two decades working for Estrada and Valet, the two mining giants that are mining nickel and TGMs in the Sudbury District. This is my third public company. 
company. I'm one of the original co-founders of Nova Gold. I was there for about a dozen years where we took that company from a similar size market cap to, as we are at Wellgreen today, to over a $2 billion company. So that was a huge success for, for shareholders. Likewise, on my second public company at South American Silver, we had a terrific success on that project, taking it from also a $30 million market cap to ultimately about a $350 million company. And here at Wellgreen, we're about a $60 million value today in the marketplace, but based on the asset we have and the metal in the ground, this is one of those opportunities that with successful development, we have potential to also deliver multiples in terms of the value. Uh, I think of the, the three opportunities I've been associated with over my career, I, I think this is one of the most exciting because it combines the scale and low political risk of Innova Gold, but we've got the excellent infrastructure in place, and the Yukon is considered one of the best mining jurisdictions globally. It's a pretty exciting time for us at Wellgreen. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Wellgreen Platinum, recently upgraded to big board status on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol WG, and in the U.S. as WGPLF. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young, the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners, who is also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in Los Angeles. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. About two years ago, I think, the price of oil was probably about $105 a barrel. Is that correct? Does that sound Sounds right? right? Yeah. And it's a completely different ball game right now. And I'm sure this is not a happy place for you. I'm sure it's not a happy place for many investors who, I'm going to use the word, piled into oil over the last few years, especially hedging against the dollar, perhaps hedging against gold. What do you think has been happening? I mean, there are a number of different theories about it, but it looks like the short-term supply exceeded the short-term demand. In any physical commodity market, you need the supply and demand to match. And so in this case, it looks like the price of oil has been falling in order to match the supply and demand. I've heard from a, a couple of sources that the supply has always been there, that the speculators drove the market up, and perhaps the same folks that drove gold up to a place where that was never sustainable. I think gold and oil are very different. All of the oil that's ever been produced in history has been burned, except for the oil that's been produced today and yesterday, whereas all of the gold that's been produced in history more or less is still available today. So the supply and demand dynamics are very different. It's hard to make comparisons. I think there definitely was a speculative effect on the price of oil. You can see that the speculative futures positions have changed a lot in the last few months. There are way fewer long speculative positions in oil than there were three or four months ago. It's hard to tell exactly whether that's following the price down or whether that's driving the price down, but that type of speculative open interest can have an effect on a commodity price, and that may have been one of the factors that has driven the price down so fast by so much. You don't think that the, the Bakken oil boom in the last two years has had any dramatic effect on the market and what's been going on in Canada with regard to shale? Or that just part of the picture? I think it's a big part of the picture. If you look at global supply picture, the only place in the world where oil production has actually increased has been in the U.S. and Canada. The U.S. and Canada actually represent more than 100% of the supply increase over the last few years, which means that global oil production outside of the U.S. and Canada is actually 
actually fallen while U.S. and Canada have grown. And certainly oil shale fields like the Bakken and up in Canada, like the Duvernay and Motney, and back in the U.S., like the Eagleford, have definitely been the large drivers of that oil growth. Is that production sustainable now, given the uh, drop in prices? Absolutely not. (laughs) I think uh, a lot of the wells that have been drilled, especially at the costs that they were drilled, would be uneconomic at current prices. I think that the producers, when they were drilling, were not expecting current prices. And I think that you're seeing that evidenced in CapEx guidance for 2015. I mean, you're seeing large companies that were absolute Wall Street favorites, companies like Oasis, where Goldman Sachs had them as their highest rated, strongest buy recommendation possible. They were touting them as a focus list stock and something everyone should own. That stock is down over 75%. And their drilling budget from 2014 to 2015 is changing so radically that they're dropping 10 out of the 16 rigs that they were running. They're going from 16 down to six. So obviously you can see that whatever supply they were going to grow, they probably won't. And maybe it takes a few months for that to play out. But across the space, you're seeing producers cutting back rigs dramatically. And that will first slow down production growth. And then eventually, if prices stay where they're at, that will lead to shrinking supply from these same places where we were seeing some production growth. So potentially, could we see the same sort of bust that we saw in the 80s with the oil companies and Houston became a ghost town more or less. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that will be the same type of bust. I mean, that was really bad. And the biggest difference is that there was dramatic oversupply and overcapacity for production in the 80s. At that time, I think there was something like over 10 million barrels a day of potential supply that OPEC could bring on that they weren't bringing on. It might have been even as high as 20 million barrels a day. There was just this huge amount of supply that OPEC could bring on, and they were signaling to the market that they were going to do it. And so they were starting to bring it on incrementally. That caused oil prices to fall and fall more, and there was effectively no bottom except the marginal cost of production for the Saudis, which was super, super low. Right now, there is very little excess supply. The Saudis claim to have a couple million barrels a day, which obviously is much smaller than 20 million barrels a day or 10 million barrels a day. It's unclear whether they even have that couple million barrels a day of excess capacity that they claim. And as a percentage of total production and total demand, it's a very small percentage. And that's the only available spare capacity across the whole petroleum system and across the whole world. From a spare capacity perspective, there's much less spare, it'll be much harder for things to stay bad as long. We're already seeing a production response. We're already seeing a large number of drilling rigs losing work and getting laid down and seeing companies that hire those rigs announcing plans to cut rigs further. I think we'll see a production response. That being said, things are not going to be pretty in Texas and they will not be pretty in Houston. That's going to be driven by these rig cuts and driven by the production cuts that are going to be associated with them. There's a whole economy associated with the oil and gas industry, and that economy is headquartered in Houston. There are often major offices in Denver, and so things might not be so great in Colorado either. But in addition to all of the direct jobs, there are all of the jobs that are at the oil producers. There's also all of the oil service jobs. There are the oil supply jobs. There's other associated manufacturing and distribution, all the jobs associated with that. And then there's everything that's servicing those. So all of the hotel companies and the restaurants and the shops and the apartments There are all kinds of things that go into an economy and everything that's touching oil and gas producers and oil and gas service companies is going to hurt. 
And I don't think people are expecting it. We're not seeing a reflection of it yet in the financial markets. Even though I think that oil prices may rebound at some point in 2015, I think that there will still be significant damage from an employment perspective, and that will filter down to a number of different service industries and may affect the overall Texas economy. If you look at countries that are exposed to oil in the same way that Texas is exposed to oil, you look at places like Russia, Venezuela, places in the Middle East, their economies are slowing down dramatically. Russia is in a recession already. Venezuela is a mess. Actually, the stock markets for a lot of oil producing countries, even ironically Saudi Arabia, their stock markets are down a lot and those markets are pricing in a recession. The Canadian dollar is down and Canada is having trouble. I don't think it's so radical to look at Texas and say, okay, well, Texas has a lot in common with, let's say, Canada. Although Texans and Canadians might not necessarily get along so well. <laughs> you put them in a room together. But um, if, you, uh, if you just look at their economies, they're a lot in, in common. And so I think it's not so radical to say in the same way as people are focusing on Canada and saying, oh, well, Canada's having all these problems and focusing on Russia and saying Russia's having all these problems. Well, I mean, hate to break it to you, but the economy in Texas is actually very similar to the economy in Russia. Is that pain going to come to Texas? When will they start to really feel the hurt as far as the general population of the state is concerned? I think it's going to be faster than a year. I think it's already happening. BP put out an announcement that they're planning to spend over the next few months $1 to $2 billion in severance payments as they lay off people and BP has a large office and facilities in Houston. There's a proposed merger between Halliburton and Baker Hughes. And if that happens, they'll probably shut down the Baker Hughes Innovation Center and fire thousands of people in, in Houston. There'll probably be all kinds of synergies, and frankly, synergies mean jobs. And so there'll be a lot of people that get laid off. Maybe the Innovation Center doesn't get cut, but maybe the Baker Hughes headquarters gets cut or whatever it is. You know, They have to fund a merger of that size through rationalization. And even if they weren't going to rationalize, they still are going to see way fewer rigs both onshore and offshore, and so they'll need fewer people. So unfortunately, you'll see people that were working on rigs and making $100,000 a year go work at Walmart and make $25,000 a year. And those people aren't going to be able to spend as much money. They're going to lose their houses in some cases. Their real estate values are going to go down. Restaurants are going to see less people eating at their restaurants. Hotels are going to see fewer hotel nights, both from employees of companies for on business as well as for leisure nights on people traveling on their own. And I think we're going to start seeing that really soon. I mean, you're already seeing people get laid off and furloughed. And I think you'll see even more of that as the 2015 capital budgets start to be implemented in 2015. And as you see these rigs go from like Oasis running 16 rigs to running six, 10 rigs is a lot of people. And maybe the, the people that work on the rigs were in North Dakota, but a lot of them may live in Texas and commute back and forth. And then all the service personnel that are based in Denver or based in Houston, I mean, that's really going to affect the local economy. So the Bakken's are done then too, right? Done is a strong word, but yeah, I mean, definitely there's a big pullback. And actually Bakken oil right now is selling, or at least the last I checked, it was selling at a greater than $10 differential to West Texas Intermediate. It's really hard to make money in a Bakken oil well at below $50 oil. What are the repercussions for the U.S. economy in general? It'll be interesting. I mean, I think there's definitely a one-time gain for the economy just just for consumers as they're able to spend less money on gasoline and go do other stuff with it. Ironically, though, our energy balance is much closer to balance than it ever has been in the sense that like we produce a lot more of our own oil. And so there is going to be this short-term effect of consumers having more money and spending more, but there's also going to be a longer-term effect of lower employment. And a lot of our economic growth in the last few years has been in the oil and gas space. 
And so as we see companies cut jobs, it's unclear where those jobs are going to be added. And the economic recovery was tenuous as is. So we'll see what happens. But it's definitely like short term, very short term. It's good overall for the economy. But medium term, it may end up being more challenging than people expect. Did you see this coming? No, absolutely not. (laughs) Honestly, like I've had conversations with clients about this and other investors and the best oil traders in the world who earn their returns from predicting oil prices rather than doing what I do and, and finding undervalued stocks. Even those guys were caught like with, without their shorts on. Andrew Hall, who's famous, he, he ran Fibro and runs uh, Aston Back Capital and manages billions of dollars trading oil. He was massively long oil and was interviewed, I think, by Forbes in early September talking about how the long dated price of oil was too low. And at that point, it was like $85 or something and how he was buying call options on it and thought it would be great. Recently, he's come out and said now he's short and he actually made money in November because he flipped his position and was short it. But even like the best oil traders were long going into this, not short. How relevant is production in Libya, Iran, and Iraq with regard to supply right now? That's a great question. I think one of the causes of oil prices falling so much so quickly was unexpected production coming online from Libya. Libya isn't in the news that much these days, but there's a terrible civil war being fought there right now. And it's actually, frankly, surprising that any oil is coming out of Libya at this point. The rebels seem to be somewhat successful. They've secured control of a number of different cities in the country. It's a relatively small country and not that many large area of land and not that many people. But the civil war is raging. And I don't think anyone really expected the amount of oil production that's come online from Libya. And that's actually started to pull back a little bit. But there was an incremental something like 700,000 barrels a day of Libyan oil production that came online starting in September. And that's around when the price of oil started to fall. I think what's happened is between the, the Libyan production coming online and just it looks like on a number of different fronts, geopolitical risk is getting talked down. I think geopolitical risk has kind of left the price of oil to a large extent. And right now, the oil price is implying zero or even negative geopolitical risk. I don't think it's a terrible thesis to own oil on the back of, hey, like, one or more of the producing areas are going to have some kind of disruption or trouble. And in the same way as 700,000 barrels a day of production came online from Libya, 700,000 barrels a day from Libya could very easily come offline. And 3 million barrels a day could easily come offline from Iraq, where there's a terrorist entity that's running 50% of the country. And very easily a bomb could go off on some kind of pipeline or supply terminal in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. And any one of those things would immediately send oil to a much higher price than where it was back in July. We briefly talked about Russia earlier. Where does Russia figure into any of this? And as their control over energy in Europe waned? I think it's interesting. I think Russia's in a challenging position I mean, to a certain extent, like the leadership of Russia kind of asked for this. They invaded another country in Europe with impunity and annexed part of it. And that hasn't happened in Europe for a very long time. And the last time it happened to the scale that Russia is doing, it caused a world war. So I think Russia's economy is slowing down a little bit. Relatively speaking, it is minor compared to what's happened in history for countries that try to take parts of other countries in Europe. When you look at their economy, I mean, the largest factor by far is the price of oil and natural gas. And the price of oil falling is definitely hurting their economy. Their stock market's down a lot. 
and I think things will be challenging for them economically. I think that there's some chance that they try to pull back on production themselves and try to force the price of oil higher. The problem is that for their budget to work, they really need a much higher oil price and all their production online. So every barrel they pull off, they make it harder to meet their own budget targets. So the other way they could go is they could do what Saudi Arabia is doing and produce extra oil and try to grow their production more. From the signals that they've shown, it looks like they'll they'll shrink. But if you look at what Saudi Arabia did in the 80s, they made up for lower oil prices by producing more volume. So they produced more barrels and the more barrels they produced, the more money they made, even at a lower price. If you were producing a million barrels a day and oil was at 20, or you're producing 3 million barrels a day and oil is at 10, at the 3 million barrels a day, at least your revenue is going to be higher than it was with 1 million barrels a day, even with a lower price. So there is a possibility that Russia goes that direction. They've signaled they're going the other way. They've signaled that they're potentially going to see supply drop in 2015 and I believe it was Luke Oil that put out their capital budget and indicated that they might shrink their production by as much as a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, but we'll see. So the best we can hope for, let's say, if a number of these things happen, is maybe $80 oil. Is $80 oil enough to bring any of these producers back in in Texas, for instance? I actually think oil will recover to $100 a barrel, Okay. and I think that happens over the next few years, potentially over the next two years. I'm a little bit less ambitious than T. Boone Pickens, who came out a couple weeks ago and said that he thought that within one year it would go back to 100. I think it'll take a little bit more time than that. Harold Hamm did that too, like a couple months ago. He said, oh, oil is going right back to 100, and he monetized all his hedges. His investors are probably not super happy with him right now for having done that. I'm not making bets on any like massive recovery of oil anytime in the immediate future. I think that you'll see the price of oil approach the marginal cost of production, and I think that the marginal cost of production is around $100 a barrel and potentially in excess of that. So I think that over time you'll see that. You know, it may take some time to, to get back to that price. And, you know, at $80 oil, like things are still bad in Russia and they're still bad in places like Texas. You'll still see fewer rigs running. You'll see fewer people employed directly in the oil business. And there's that's going to trickle through throughout the economy. I will say that Texas is a great place for people to live and a great place to do business. And so there has been a lot of economic growth there not directly related to the price of oil, but it's probably not enough for the state to be able to avoid the impact of a shock to the largest industry that's active in the space. What kind of real estate opportunities are there now in the oil and gas industry around the U.S.? From a, a actual real estate perspective, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think that you'll see like actual like office prices and residential prices and, and the like fall in Texas and I'm maybe things get interesting. I'm talking but I, about I understand. Oil, I You're talking about like oil wells. It'll be interesting. Actually, the oil production deals I've seen recently have not been at substantially lower prices than they were at a few months ago. One deal I saw that happened a month and a half ago was for oil production in the Permian Basin, and it was at $100,000 per flowing barrel. And that same property a few months before that might have sold for $120,000 a flowing barrel. So it was you know, roughly like 16% or 18% cheaper. It wasn't a huge savings relative to uh, the price movement. And at that time, the price of oil was already down 25 to 30%. There are properties available. There will be people in distress. Probably the best properties to buy aren't going to be producing properties. 
There'll probably be undeveloped shale properties that are uneconomic at current oil prices, but are very economic at higher prices. Very intelligent, distressed investors have bought these types of properties through cycles. And uh, I was fortunate to have bought some of these types of uh, properties through the public markets, buying stocks that had those types of exposures through the correction in uh, 2008 2009 and, and did well with those too. I think those are probably the best buys, but there will be a lot of properties on the market And from what I've seen so far, prices haven't fallen that much, but there haven't been that many transactions. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Let's talk about shorting oil stocks. Is this a profitable business for the savvy investor right now? I mean, anytime that a commodity goes down a lot, the commodity producer's stocks are going to go down a lot too. And so obviously the price of oil and gas stocks have gone down a lot. So if you happen to have been short them from the outset, you've made a lot of money or you've earned a high return on on the investment that you've made by shorting these stocks. And if you happen to have shorted into this as it's happened, you've you've done well too. On a go-forward basis, the companies that would be the best shorts, the ones that are very highly levered, that have a risk of going bankrupt, are probably not great shorts now for a couple of reasons. So first of all, the short interest in those stocks are already really high, which means that There's a high cost to borrow those stocks. There's a risk that you could get squeezed and forced to cover your position at a loss. There's a a risk of a short squeeze where the price starts to go up really fast and you get margined out and forced to, to cover again at a loss. And then there's a very high cost to borrow. So in order to be able to short the stock, you have to actually borrow the stock and then sell it. And the cost to borrow can be so high that it actually takes up a lot of your potential profit. So in some cases, the cost to borrow stocks are almost as high as 100%. So you need the stock to fall by 100% in less than a year in order to be able to make any kind of profit on having shorted it. So like if you short, for example, you know XYZ oil company and that you think the stock is going to go to zero, if it costs you 100% a year and let's say the stock was at $10, if the stock goes to $5 in a year, it costs you $10 in interest payments while it ha- while you only earn $5 profit, so you actually lose $5 from having done it. So that's the, the tough economics, but it gets worse. So the reason it gets worse is if for some reason there's some kind of supply disruption, which again could happen any day, and I'm not saying it will necessarily happen, but there are a bunch of different terrorist groups and other like dissident groups in across the Middle East, and there have been all kinds of uprisings. If one of those has one bomb in like the wrong place at the wrong time, you'd see oil supply disruption, oil prices would go back up, And the companies that are the most levered, those stocks are the most likely to go up by the most, especially because they have high short interest. So basically, there's a a phrase, I believe Warren Buffett's used this and other value investors, they say it's uh, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And so you really don't want to be the person who's picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And at this point, if you're shorting a lot of the heavily shorted upstream oil and gas companies, or even the service companies, you're at risk of doing that. So, you know, potential small profit, you have to give a lot of that back because it costs a lot to borrow the stock to short it. And then there's a lot of risk that the stock might go up a lot just from something that's out of your control. So the smart people, this is really risky. It's not something they typically do. You wouldn't do this. 
Well, I mean, I have been shorting select oil and gas company stocks. There are companies that are frauds, so I'm always interested in finding fraudulent companies and shorting those stocks, whether they're in oil and gas or other spaces. And it's amazing that within the public markets, there's always a few companies that are just, they're just bad. And the people that run them are are criminals and they do this persistently. Like you'll see them run companies into the ground over and over again. So I'm short frauds and I I short frauds into rising markets and I short them into crashes and you know, I'll, I'll continue to do that. And I've also shorted very specific companies that have specific cost challenges or that were trading well above their fair value. So independent of the price movement of oil, there was one company that was trading at two times its 3P value. So the proved probable and possible value of all of their assets as assessed by reserve engineers that they paid to do the assessment assessed that their properties, let's say, were worth $100 million and their stock was trading at, let's say, $200 million. And actually, I think it was a bigger company than that, and there was multiples of that. So it made no sense that their stock would trade at that level and insiders were selling. And so like, that's an example of something that I shorted. Right now, I'm looking at shorting companies that are levered to secondary or, or, or from a tertiary perspective to oil. So there are oil producers and service companies, then there are companies that service them, and then there's kind of these companies that are exposed to the economies in the areas that those companies are active. And I think that those companies, their stocks aren't down at all. And I think that there's some interesting opportunities to make money from that. So this is what you do in times like this. This is, or in any time, actually, you look for opportunities to help continue to put people out of business that shouldn't be in any business and profit along the way. Well, I don't think I'm putting anyone out of business. I mean, me shorting a stock, uh, I'm just a participant in the market. Whenever I sell a stock, someone else is buying it, whether it's me selling a stock I own or it's me borrowing a stock to short it and then selling it to someone so I don't actually put anyone out of business, but I think that shorting is a good and healthy price discovery mechanism where it allows markets to get to a more accurate and fair price for a security over time. I think that it's really interesting that there are these companies out there that are exposed, for example, to the Texas economy that are trading at all-time highs, and they're trading at in my opinion, stupid high EV to EBITDA metrics or PE multiples or whatever. And you don't really see that in Russia, right? Like Russian banks that are exposed to the Russian economy are down 80% in the last two years. And right now, the Texas banks that are exposed to the Texas economy are starting to go down, but there are other sectors where they just haven't moved. It seems obvious. And the nice thing about it is that if I'm wrong and Texas continues to grow, I could lose a small amount of money. But if I'm right, and you know things get bad and especially like certain specific areas which are particularly levered to the growth rate of an economy if things even slow down a little bit high multiple stocks that are directly exposed to those economies could do really really poorly and shorting those could do really well you would think that geopolitically speaking and as far as the energy supply that exists in russia and the the banking problem that they're having the hit that they're taking that it would behoove our beloved Vladimir Putin to get behind some mischief in the world. Yeah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I don't disagree. I mean, like, it wouldn't be the craziest thing. The USSR, which is where Putin grew up and he was a KGB officer, like, they did things that were much more radical than that. This is a a small, it would be a small thing for them to do, relatively speaking. And it's a small thing to disrupt the oil market relative to invading and annexing the Crimea. I mean, there was a whole war in between Russia and the Ottoman Empire and the British and the French over Crimea 
and disrupting oil markets. I mean, countries disrupt markets for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the Chinese disrupted the rare earth market. Was there a war? No, like they didn't really care. Not really. I mean, you know, the few producers cared and a bunch of there were a bunch of stock price manipulators that like ran up and down rare earth mining stocks associated with that. But there are supply disruptions associated with geopolitics all the time. And the I don't think it would be that surprising. That being said, I'm not buying oil stocks hoping that Putin goes and does something, but it's not unreasonable to expect that he or someone else like him might do something. We can expect something like that or as, as much as we could expect anything else, correct? Again, I'm not counting on it, but it could happen. So Josh, tell me, is now a good time to buy oil and gas stocks? Well, I think so. And it's actually been pretty exciting for me, especially as I go on fundraise, because while I think so, and you know, I'm relatively young and have only been a professional investor for less than 10 years, there are some really bright people out there and really famous people out there that are saying the same thing. So PIMCO actually put in their, their monthly update letter last week, they put out something saying that they think that now, it was amazing, they said now is a good time to buy small cap oil and gas stocks. And Steve Schwartzman came out in an interview with Bloomberg today, and he said that now is the best time to invest in energy stocks in many years, which is pretty fantastic. I mean, I'm not sure I could pay for that kind of advertising. It's pretty great. And I'm not sure where else people would go to invest in small cap oil and gas stocks, frankly. I mean, there's not really a lot of choices in terms of advisors. And then I think there's a lot of risks in the space where there are a lot of these companies that we talked about that are over levered. And I think that if you're able to avoid those and able to find companies that are well positioned and are cheap that it actually makes a lot of sense and I think that Chief Schwartzman and I think that you know Blackstone and I think that Pimco are right and I think that people investing now will, will do very well. And you go long on these small cap stocks, right? Absolutely, yeah. The cheap ones that are they're undervalued and underlevered are, are very interesting right now. Any trading opportunities? <laughs> Buy low, sell high. But what if that happens every other day? It's <laughs> <laughs> a challenge. There was actually a position I initiated and I was telling one of my clients about it and suggesting that he buy some too and he wanted to do some more due diligence and I was planning on holding it for probably a year or two. It was a high-yielding company that happened to be under-levered and, and particularly safe and was a very unusual opportunity. And so we talked about it around 10 a.m. L.A. time, and I had put a modest-sized position on for my fund, and by... 1 p.m. LA time, the stock had gone up 40%, and I sold it because it achieved the full return that I was expecting over a year, except it achieved that return over like two hours. So yes, <laughs> buy low, sell high, sometimes the same day, but you know, definitely with a long-term orientation, but sometimes if the market just gives you a gift, you take it, say thank you, and then you move on. I thank you for your time, Josh. Thanks for joining us today in the program. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Joshua Young of Young Capital Management. You can contact Josh through his website, youngcm.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. You want my life? Take it, please. So you're sitting wherever you're sitting and you're doing whatever you're doing and you're thinking whatever you're thinking maybe, how can I move this thing forward? How can I make my life work instead of drudging through each day waiting for it to end so I can relax, right? Maybe there's some tidbit of information that will be helpful. How does he do it? He being me, the guy that's speaking to you right now. Maybe I can learn something from him, this Ellis. He's seemingly always in a good mood, having fun, being adventurous, and enjoying what looks like a great deal of leisure time doing exactly what he wants to do. I want his life! I hear that a lot, by the way. 
Here's what you can glean from all of this. Why don't you have my life? What's keeping you from having my life? Or your own version of a life similar to mine? Or your own seemingly magical life that's nothing like mine? But a life, nevertheless, that your own friends who would indeed live vicariously through you would say to you, I want your life. Whenever I hear this or read this, I think to myself and I often respond, you can. Why don't you? You should. You can have it. Make the changes. Shift away from where you've been and come to where you'd like to be. Begin now. Some have gone ahead and some have done it. And they're happy with their lives. They are thrilled with their lives. They are happier than they've ever been. And it's a lasting happiness because they've overcome their fear of the unknown. They've overcome their objections, which is another word for their fear. We're all placed where we land, where we're born, where we wind up. We don't have to stay there, whether it's a job, relationship, situation, club, organization, state, country. We can leave. And while we leave, we can come. When we leave, we can go. We come, we leave, and we arrive. We move, and we land. If Ellis can do this, certainly I can. I can have his or her fill-in-the-blank life or portion of it thereof that I like of it and can discard the rest supplementing it with my own not-so-secret pleasures. Why aren't you living the life you really want right now? You're cheating yourself if you're not. You're cheating yourself out of the only life that you have. This one. There is no next one. There is only now. Wait for what before you allow yourself to fully live now? You're using up your precious days. Have you noticed how swiftly they pass? Yes, you notice it when your friends and loved ones die. Or you yourself get sick. You notice how quickly life goes by. You're using your precious days not being who you want to be and living how you want to live, where you want to live. Tomorrow truly never happens because in actuality, when you arrive at tomorrow, it's really now. And you're still not being you, doing what you love, being with those that you'd like to be with, breathing the life, the air, breathing in the experience you want to live, breathing in the experiences you want to have, the experiences that I am breathing and living and enjoying during much of my own personal now. How? How am I doing this? How are you doing this, Ellis? Because I always knew I could. And because I believe that during enough of my moments, the moments of my eternal now, and now that you have too, because I knew I could. I know I can. And I believe it. And I carry that belief with me enough of the time, therefore it simply is. And that belief ultimately works for me, and it will absolutely work for you, and it does work for you. This is the so-called physics and science of human existence. This is the science we're not taught, but you're hearing now. Because you bother to listen. Because intuitively, you know this is your time. That your time is now, and it's always now. Erase a fear. Erase an objection. Erase a reason. Erase a condition. Erase a sentiment. Erase an opinion. Erase a judgment. Erase an impediment. Erase whatever it is. And pick one thing for now. Erase that thing and replace it with an action that just might, that just could, and probably will bring you closer to the kind of life that you have not allowed yourself to have just yet or maybe ever, or maybe tomorrow. Erase something that you don't need, and let something else magically appear that truly suits who you really are, 
The you that you always wanted for yourself. The you that you always knew you were, perhaps from a very young age. The you that has been waiting a long time for the big debut into the now. Now, I don't know what this is for you, but you know. You know you. Yes, you do. Be this you. Begin now. Begin again. Begin again all the time. Begin every day. There's a reason the sun arises every single day. That reason is that each day is yet another opportunity to enjoy all that there is right now, every day. The sun doesn't rise just once in a lifetime. It rises every day. And each day is an opportunity for some kind of fulfillment every day. You say you want my life? Why don't you have it? Have your own life. It's free. It's yours. It's waiting. It's now. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com.